Perhaps you heard the story about the teacher in Texas who was helping one of her kindergarten students put on his his cowboy boots. He had asked for help, and she could see why. Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots were very, very hard to get on. It took a lot of effort. And by the time they got the second boot on, she had worked up quite a sweat helping him. She almost cried when the little boy turned to her and said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. So she looked, and sure enough, the boots were on the wrong feet. It wasn't any easier getting them off, but after great effort, they got the boots off, and she managed to keep her cool as they worked hard to get the boots back on, this time on the right feet. And then when he, she got the boots all the way back on, he announced... These aren't my boots. (laughs) She bit her tongue rather than scream, Why didn't you say so? Once again, she struggled to help him pull off the ill-fitting boots. No sooner had they gotten the boots off his little feet when he said, They're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them. (laughs) So... At this point, she didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but she mustered up her grace and courage, and she wrestled the boots back on to his feet. Helping him into his coat that day, she asked, now where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. It takes a great deal of perseverance to be a kindergarten teacher, I think. And sometimes perseverance can be very frustrating, especially when things don't go the way we'd planned, when we don't understand what is happening. And that is why I think that one of the hallmarks of faith in God is perseverance. We've been studying the great faith chapter, the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And there are a number of lessons we learn about what real faith is. And the final one in this chapter, I think, is perseverance. Perseverance means trusting God's plan in spite of unfulfilled promises. Look down at the very last two verses of Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Verses 39 and 40 of Hebrews 11. And all of these, he's been talking about all of the saints who've gone before, all of these heroes of the faith, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, They should not be completed. They should not be made perfect. These two verses are the summary statement for all that came before in Hebrews chapter 11, our Hall of Faith chapter. All of these heroes of the faith proved their faith by their actions, even though they never received the fulfillment of the promises of God even though they never received the benefits, the full benefits of those promises in their lifetimes. What they experienced 
certainly were victories, and we'll talk about those, for God gives us victories in this life, but they were also trials and struggles and suffering and persecution. And that's the test that God puts us through in life. That's how he proves our faith. We have to learn to trust his plan in spite of unfulfilled promises. Even when things don't work the way we'd like. Even when things we don't even see the fulfillment of things we know God has promised. We still have to trust his plan. So, we are going to be tested. You are tested. I am tested by the trials of life. And we must persevere in our faith. Now, the word translated here in verse 39, having gained approval, means literally having been confirmed on the basis of our faith. God confirms or approves or attests or affirms, if you will, our faith by how we respond to him in the situations we face in life, in our circumstances. So, the first lesson of persevering faith is we are confirmed by the trials of faith, in verse 39. We are confirmed by the trials of faith. And all of these, having been confirmed through their faith, did not receive what was promised. According to Campus Life magazine, here are some real-life bulletin bloopers. We never have bulletin bloopers here, you understand. But here's a few. The odor of worship is as follows. Thursday night, potluck supper, prayer and medication to follow. That's not happening tonight, you understand. You You won't need medication tonight. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community... This being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Worry. Do you ever worry? No. You never worry, do you? (laughs) Worry is the antithesis of faith. Worry denies our faith. When we worry, we are saying we don't trust God's plan. That's what we are saying when we worry. But we still worry, don't we? We still have a tendency to worry about all of that stuff in life. The heroes of the faith, the people we've been studying in this chapter, and we'll talk about some more of them this morning are all men and women, just like you and me, who learned to trust God instead of worrying about life. So let's take a look at this summary of persevering faith and let God teach us not to worry about the things of this life. The first category, verses 32 through 34, faith in victory. We do experience victories, do we not? And they come by faith. That's the only way, by the way, victories come in life, is by faith. But the wonderful thing is we do experience victories in this life. It's not all doom and gloom. God does great things. 
and we experience those victories in our lives. Look at verses 32 to 34. Because really, verses 32 down through 38 are all summed up in verse 39. Because he's talking about all of these lessons from these previous verses. So verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, see that's the key, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Six people are mentioned by name along with the category of the prophets here. Others are inferred by the, the descriptions. Now with the exception of Samuel in this list, the other five are all deeply flawed men. These are not perfect people. So that's the problem we have with this issue of faith sometimes, is we think, oh, well, look at the saints, the, the heroes, they're perfect people, and I'm not. But they are not perfect people. They are deeply flawed men. Gideon was no profile in courage, believe me. He was scared to death. He was not the person you would normally pick to lead an army. He was a timid and fearful man. And then to make matters worse, as he faced this vast Midianite army, God took away his army and got rid of them all down to 300 men. You know the story. And with 300, he led the charge against a huge Midianite army and God gave them a great victory. Barak seems an unlikely hero of faith. I mean, the prophetess Deborah would make a better example here, it seems to me. But God chose Barak. He did lead the nation to a victory. And he exhibited his trust in God by saying to Deborah the prophetess, you are the representative God. I trust God's word through you. You need to come with me. And... Deborah said, well, you will not get any of the credit. You will not get any of the glory. It's going to go to a woman. You'll get no glory. And yet, he still trusted God and still led the people to victory because he trusted that God should get the honor and others should get the credit, but he would still obey God. So he is an example of faith in God. Samson. Oh, what a flawed character. He is full of flaws. But in the end, Samson pleads with God as he stood in that temple, give me your strength again, God. And he pulled down the pillars of the temple. And the lords of the Philistines, along with Samson, went to their death, and God gave them a great victory by faith. See, God uses flawed people. Isn't that good? Because I'm flawed. And I want to know that God can use me. And he can use you. Jephthah led the nation to victory against the Ammonites. Of course, he made a stupid, rash vow. 
And what's worse, he even followed through on the vow. But his speech motivated the nation to go to battle, trusting in God and in God alone. That's faith. David certainly had his flaws, but he also trusted God through many trials of life. He proved to be a man after God's own heart. Samuel, of course, was a great prophet of faith through years of struggle for the nation. And, of course, the moodiness of Saul, the first king. Samuel has been called God's emergency man because he was always called by God to step into one crisis after another crisis by faith. It was by faith that these men conquered kingdoms, we're told. It was not because they were smarter. It was not because they were more powerful. It wasn't because they were more courageous. It was solely by faith in God's power that they won the victories. It was because in each case they trusted God. So Sihon and Og, the Egyptians, the Philistines, fell before the power of God. They worked righteousness. Now that doesn't mean that they were perfectly righteous. It means that they did righteous works by faith. And incidentally, that's the only way anybody can do righteous works, is by faith. It's the only way to please God at all. They obtained the promises of God. Now, they didn't see the fulfillment of all of those promises, but they certainly received promises by God to them. And even if they didn't see the end of God's plan, they trusted Him. They shut the mouths of lions, surely refers to Daniel in the lion's den. They extinguished the power of fire, probably refers to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who remained unsinged, standing in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar because they refused to bow to the image of the king. Several prophets escaped the edge of the sword, like Elijah, who escaped from Jezebel, and Jeremiah, who escaped from Jehoiakim. I like the expression that they all from weakness were made strong. Isn't that a good one? From weakness they were made strong. That's how God works. He empowers those who are weak so that they achieve things for God and by God's power, not by their own power. That's ever the way God deals with you and me too. He chose weak and flawed humans to be heroes of the faith. And he's still choosing weak and flawed humans to earn great victories by his power and by faith in him. We are not mind-benders, we are faith-benders. It is our faith, it is by our faith in God that God changes the realities of this world. God purposely puts us in places and situations of weakness and struggle and limitation in order to test our faith in his power. Warren Bailey died July 14, 2000 at the age of 88. Warren Bailey had no family and he wasn't much of a church-going man. To the best of anybody's recollection in the town of St. Mary's, Georgia, Warren Bailey hadn't been to church in at least 20 years. He did, however, make annual donations of around $100,000 to St. Mary's United Methodist Church, a 350-member congregation with an annual budget of less than $300,000. 
It probably wasn't a great shock that the, to the members of St. Mary's that the church was remembered in Mr. Bailey's will, but the amount of the bequest was indeed a shock. There was stunned silence in the congregation that Sunday morning when Reverend Derek McAleer broke the news that the man who owned 49% of the region's Camden Telephone Company had left the church $60 million. $60 million. It's all unreal to me, said the pastor. This is a number that doesn't have any reality. I'd have a hard time <laughs> figuring that one, too. Mr. Bailey's will included no instructions on how the money was to be used, so the church has set up an, an advisory board to decide how to handle its newfound and unexpected wealth. Reverend McAleer reports that he's been besieged with calls asking for money. The church is now one of the most popular places in all of Georgia, probably or was then, I should say. And he admits to a worry that greed would consume the congregation. This was his lament. How do we remain a Christian church with $60 million? What would you do if God gave you... What would you do if God gave us $60 million? Say, I'd like to try that, God. You know what? That would be a real test. God doesn't usually do that because prosperity frequently breeds a lack of faith and we stop trusting God. Our finances at Galilee are a struggle this year. That's no secret. You can see that. Is that a problem for God that God can't take care of? No. Not a bit. Is he going to drop 60 million on us? I doubt it. We probably couldn't handle it. Usually God doesn't jump, dump millions on his people or his church. He chooses to test our faith. And see if we're faithful to keep trusting him with the little we have to do his work. He wants to find out if we will be faithful to trust him by giving the little he gives to us to do great things for God that he wants to accomplish. So keep plugging away. Give weekly by faith, knowing that God is the one we trust, not our bank account. See, the problem is if we had $60 million, we'd start trusting our bank account instead of God. And he wants us to trust him, both personally and as a church. Faith in victories. There are victories. The second category is faith in persecution. Verses 35 and 36. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. The widow of Zarephath, the wealthy woman of Shunem in the Old Testament had their sons restored to life by the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Others were tortured because they refused to accept release and to deny God. They chose to trust in God for a better resurrection than merely a human resurrection. Because there's a greater resurrection, right? The Greek word for tortured is the word from which we get our English word timpani is something you beat on. 
It, it referred to torturing on the rack, where they would stretch somebody and then beat them to death. People were tortured because they, they would not deny God. That was, by the way, the precise the language even that was used in 2 Maccabees during the intertestamental period of Eliezer, one of the great heroes of the Jewish faith during the Maccabean period. That's before Christ came to this earth, but after the end of the, of the Old Testament writings. He was tortured to death on the rack because he refused to deny God. Following his story in 2 Maccabees, we have the story of the mother and her seven sons who each chose to die rather than deny their faith in God. In the Christian calendar, the first day of August, by the way, we don't pay too much attention to the Christian calendar often in our circles. It's more the liturgical circles. But in the Christian calendar, the first day of August is the festival of the martyrdom of the Holy Maccabees people who chose to follow Jehovah God refused to deny him and died being tortured to death. They trusted in a greater resurrection than a human resurrection. You see, God is still faithful to us even if we die. Why? Because there's a greater resurrection coming. That doesn't deny his faithfulness to us. It just postpones the fulfillment of his promises. There is a greater resurrection, the resurrection of saints for all of eternity, not just for life on this earth. All of these persevered in faith. As someone has said, perseverance is faith stretched out. Ever have your faith stretched out? Man, how long do I have to keep trusting him in this? When are you going to answer, God? When are you going to fix the problem? My faith is getting stretched out to the breaking point, or else it's like a rubber band that's going to come snapping back. Well, perseverance is faith stretched out, and it's the hallmark of true faith. It's not giving up on God. It's not giving up on church. It's not giving up on my marriage It's not giving up on my friends. It's not giving up on my life when things get a little rough, when things don't go right. It's faith stretched out. That's true faith. True faith perseveres. True faith gets stretched out, even stretched out to eternity as we trust God in the rough times of life. See, circumstances do not always work out the way we want them to work out. There are many things in this life we do not have control over. We have to persevere in our faith. We have to show our faith, thirdly, in suffering. The third category, verses 37 and 38. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Not exactly the who's who of this world, right? 
According to church tradition, Jeremiah was stoned to death by the Jews in Egypt when he continued to preach against their idolatry. Faithful Jeremiah. According to church tradition, Zechariah was stoned to death. Well, actually, that's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 24, by order of Joash. And Jerusalem had a reputation for stoning the prophets. What did Jesus say in the, in the New Testament? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the ones God sent to you. The traditional fate of Isaiah was that he was sawn in two by a wood saw during the reign of Manasseh. That's what Isaiah got for being faithful to God. The prophet Uriah was murdered with a sword. James, the brother of John in Acts 12, was executed with a sword. Elijah the prophet wore sheepskins. John the Baptist was clothed in garments of hair. Many of God's saints were in need, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated by the powers of this world. The world considered them nobodies. The world did not consider them worthy, these heroes of the faith. But he says, in reality, the world was not worthy of you. And they rejected you and your faith in God. They wandered in deserts, slept in caves, because they trusted in God instead of the power brokers of this world. This is the legacy. These are the saints who have gone before us and showed us how to trust God. It does not always pay to follow God. Following God by faith does not necessarily lead to a life of comfort and ease. I should repeat that, given the preachers that are so prevalent all over the United States that tell you if they trust God, you'll be rich. I'm telling you, if you trust God, you may have nothing. Nothing at all. He may may give you much. Wonderful. Praise Him for it. But understand that he who, to whom much is given, much is required too. The more you get from God, the more you'd better be faithful with. But God doesn't say that. There's no promise that you will be prosperous and successful in this life by faith. That you will be comfortable and at ease. We can end up worrying so much about all of this stuff, right? Where we will live and how it will work out. What we will eat. But all that worry leads to a foggy faith. According to our nation's Bureau of Standards, a dense fog covering seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet. So a real thick fog. We've had a few days of thick fog. A dense fog like that contains less than one glass of water. All that fog, if you could condense it into water, wouldn't quite fill a drinking glass. Compare that to the things we often worry about, because worry is like that fog. Like fog, our worries block 
our vision of God and His promises. But there's so little reality to the worries in the end. When we get to the other side and we look back, we wonder why we worried. God had it under control. Don't let the fog of worry hinder your view of faith. And trust Him. He'll lead you. Remember the second principle of verse 40. We are part of God's better plan. Verse 40 says, because, now here's the reason that they were affirmed by God through their faith even though they didn't receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for, and we expect him to say for them. Ah, he says for us. So that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. God had a better plan. Now, perseverance, if you're going to persevere in something, you you can't persevere unless you have a goal somewhere where you're headed. The Old Testament saints had a goal. It was God's goal. They believed that God had a better plan, so they should persevere in their faith, trusting in God's better plan. The Old Testament heroes in the Hall of Faith did not receive the benefits of the promises because God was literally looking ahead to something better for us. And they could not be completed in their faith walk or made perfect until we came along because we were part of God's something better for them. What in the world is he talking about? Well, Hebrews has repeatedly pointed to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah and the New Covenant promise that Jeremiah brought. The New Covenant is the better plan. You see, they lived under the Old Covenant. And he kept saying, but that's not the end of God's plan. The New Covenant is. The New Covenant was inaugurated, was, we can say now, for them it was yet future, was inaugurated in Jesus Christ, who came to establish the new contract with, with his people. And in that New Covenant, Gentiles are brought into the kingdom through the church. I dare say there aren't too many Jews here. There may be some. But we Gentiles were brought into God's kingdom plan. They didn't receive the fulfillment of the promises because those are fulfilled in the new covenant. God had a better plan. He wanted to bring us into the kingdom. So they had to wait. And this is God's better plan. God's greater and grander plan. We Gentiles have been added to the kingdom of God by faith in Christ And apart from us, verse 40 says, the Old Testament heroes were incomplete. God was looking ahead to us. We are the beginning of the fulfillment of the new covenant promises in Christ. And I say the beginning because that's very important to say. We still await the final fulfillment of that new covenant as well. It's not over yet. There's still a bigger, better plan coming. When Christ returns... 
when he comes back, then he begins to implement the final culmination of the new covenant plan he established in the old covenant. And we are not yet complete either. So we still have to walk by faith. We still have to persevere by faith. We must live trusting in God's plan in spite of the fact that we do not yet experience the fulfillment of all God's promises either. We have to persevere by faith. Looking ahead to God's bigger and better and grander plan for the kingdom. We are part of something bigger than us. See, it isn't about me. It isn't about you. We instead are a part of God's bigger and greater plan. And that's what we're trusting. Even when we don't experience the good things now or we don't understand how it's going to work out in our lives. And that allows us then to turn to God and to trust Him and allow Him to guide our decisions for where He wants us and what He wants us doing and how He wants us serving because He knows how we fit into His better plan. Do you trust God for that? In the decisions of life? I like the way D.L. Moody puts it. Spread out your petition before God and then say, Thy will, not mine, be done. The sweetest lesson I have learned in God's school is to let the Lord choose for me. Let the Lord choose for me. That's how we persevere in our faith. We can't see what God sees ahead of us. We have to trust Him that where He is leading is part of His better plan for us. We trust that plan. We believe that God knows what he is doing and that this is not about us. It is about him and his plan and we are simply part of that great kingdom plan. That's true for our families. That's true for our situations, our circumstances. It's all part of his plan and he knows better. So whatever you face this week or this year, whatever you're going through, You can trust God that you are part of something bigger and greater and grander than anything you're experiencing right now. God has it figured out. We may not always understand it until afterwards, but he has it figured out. You remember last year, the first half of 2009, there were news reports flooding in about all of the pirate vessels attacking the shipping lanes along the coast of Somalia and the ships being hijacked there. Entire shiploads of cargo were held ransom by the pirates and delayed or lost at sea. Amid that chaos, Mark Wilson was learning the ropes of his new job as logistics coordinator for the U.S. headquarters of Africa Inland Mission, AIM. AIM ships all of their supplies to their missionaries in Africa along the coast of Somalia. So they had a vested interest in all of this. One day, Mark received a phone call offering a supply of free Band-Aids for the missionaries in Africa. Mark gladly accepted, but he forgot to ask one little question, how many Band-Aids? When the second full-size UPS truck came absolutely crammed with Band-Aids, He realized his mistake. What in the world was he going to do with two truckloads of Band-Aids? But he took them. 
I'm always looking for ways to fill ocean containers, he said, but I realized my mistake when the second truck full of Band-Aids arrived. Soon after, he was supervising the packing of an ocean container, carrying some very valuable medical equipment and other supplies for AIM's missionaries. There was some room left over, and so what did he use? He used the Band-Aids, and he filled the shipping container with Band-Aids all around. It's good packing material, and... Um, covered the top with band-aids and shipped it out, thought no more of it. But after the equipment and supplies were, were delivered, he learned something about God's ways. Because that ship was hijacked by the pirates. And they went through the crate where the valuable medical equipment was. But when they opened the crate and they saw it full of band-aids, they said, forget it. We're not interested. And they let it go through. And all that medical equipment got to where God wanted it to be and used for his kingdom work. Mark was blown away. He says, I stand amazed at the faithfulness of God even in what I consider my mistakes. You know, God has a better plan. He knows how to orchestrate what he wants to get done what he wants to accomplish. Bill and Amy Stearns in their book 2020 Vision relate how the gospel came to Mongolia. Way back in the 1870s, missionaries went to Mongolia. It was called Outer Mongolia back then. After four decades, 40 years, these missionary teams in Mongolia had served and they had not seen a single Mongolian Christian church planted in all of those 40 years. Not one. And then, in 1921, Mongolia invited the Soviets to bring communism to their country, and in the purge, every vestige of Christianity as well as any other religion was erased. More than one million Buddhist priests, for example, were slaughtered in Mongolia by the communists. Religion was absolutely dead in Mongolia. In 1980, God started doing something about that. A young Mongolian whom they called Yi went to study at a university in Moscow. And Yi received an English language Bible from a fellow student from Tanzania. You can study English with it, the Tanzanian student said. And so for seven years, he studied English using the English-speaking Bible, English-language Bible. He rose to the top as an English interpreter with the government in Mongolia. And in 1987, he was assigned to an American big-game tourist group as translator. They'd come to Mongolia to hunt bear. Doug Coe, a Christian, was one of the tourists. And during the hunting trip, Yi found the opportunity to secretly ask Doug, Do you know God? Doug nodded, but that's all the time they had where they could secretly converse. Three hours later, Yi was able to whisper, What's God's name? And Doug said, Jesus Christ. That's all the time they had. In bits and pieces of stolen conversation throughout the rest of the big game hunt, Doug was able to introduce Yi to Jesus. 
Don't worry, he told ye. I know it's illegal to be a Christian. It will be hard for you, but friends will come. And then they left the country. Three years later, ye was assigned to another foreign tour group, a cowboy team of Native Americans who came to Mongolia to perform in a national competition in horsemanship. But the cowboy team happened to be a cowboy team of Christians. And he was the translator. And he got to translate their testimonies of faith in Christ for the media. And as he drank in all of the information that they were sharing and he had to translate, he grew. Several Mongolians, a bunch of Mongolians, also came to faith in Christ during that translation period. And ye began to disciple them in secret. But then that team too had to leave Mongolia. Then another tour group came. A few of the members of that tour group were pastors. And they found ye. And they realized how much he knew of the Lord and of his word. And the group of believers that he was discipling secretly. They gathered in a hotel room in Ulaanbaatar one very cold day in November of 1990, and they ordained Yi as an elder of the very first Mongolian church in the history of the world. God planted a church. Might have taken a hundred years, but God planted a church. God is building his church. You and I are a part of what God is building around this world. We can trust his plan. He knows what he is doing with your life and with mine. Father, teach us to trust in you as not just the architect of this world, not just the architect of this universe, not just the architect of your global church, Not just the architect of this church called Galilee Baptist Church, which is just one little part of what you are doing. But you are the architect of our lives. And we can trust you this week for the decisions we make by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 546 as we close. Great old hymn of the faith for all the saints. Now you know in chapter 12, verse 1, where we look next Sunday, we're talking about 